Hey friends, I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I have a channel called Plain Spoken. You're watching it, you're listening to it. I'm glad you are. I get to talk to all kinds of interesting people in the world of Methodism and Christianity broadly, and today I'm joined by the Reverend Matt Reynolds. He is uh, the head, the president of Spirit and Truth. This has been an organization that's actually influenced the Global Methodist Church, the development of the Global Methodist Church, but it's it's much broader than that. It's concerned with Wesleyanism uh, and Methodism broadly. And so he and I have a lot in common. Before I bring him on screen and uh, let you see his face and hear his voice, I uh, just want to give you a basic bio. He had a WordPress that I found that uh, he wrote four years ago whenever his sons were still 10, 7, and 3, and uh, now they're four years older, of course. But he started uh, president, uh, the being the president of Spirit and Truth just a few years ago. Before that, he was in 13 years of different roles within the United Methodist Church in ministry. Um, most recently, before Spirit and Truth, he served in Salina, Ohio for seven years, where he was a lead pastor of Grand Lake United Methodist Church. And after discerning God's call to step into a missionary role, he also worked for a year with a missionary organization out of Dallas, where he helped to unite churches across denominational lines for the sake of sharing Christ with their communities. And uh, he loves his journey. I, I actually spent some time listening to him talking about what led him to Spirit and Truth. He loves what he did before, but but the Lord clearly directed him in the direction he's at. Now, um, he's not where he expected. He has a personal testimonial about God pushing him in a direction he said he was not going to go, as so many of us do. Uh, but um, he, he's gotten a Asbury Seminary, he got an MDiv there, he's got a BS in Mechanical Engineering, and a Doctor of Ministry degree from United Theological Seminary. So um, the reason I like Matt and what you're going to pick up on with him immediately is he's not... Um, thrown his weight around as an expert in anything. He's just a humble believer who has a passion for the Lord, um, where uh, one of the things that I, I like most about him is he's right up front in his bio about being a family man. He's got a, a wife, Heidi, and then three sons, Grady and Jonathan, and I skipped one. Um, <laughs> Nolan is the is the eldest one. And so uh, I, I really appreciate pastors who are family men and clear about the role of that in their lives. So all these good things and more to, to come over the next hour with me and Matt Reynolds. At this point, I'll, I'll bring him on screen. Matt, so glad you've joined me today. How are you today, brother? Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, yeah, you've, you're no stranger to uh, multimedia stuff at Spirit and Truth. You guys have a number of podcasts you do. Uh, you've done some video that I've, I've found you in, but I've mostly heard your voice a lot over the last couple of years as you and uh, David Watson and Scott Kitzker yeah. and Maggie Ulmer and several others have, have uh, allowed yourselves to be recorded as you try to encourage the church. So I thought it might be fun to, to start with you. It, it won't be the main thing that we talk about. We have um, the, the clear overlap between me and you is, is a clear love of the Methodist tradition and a belief mm. that there was nothing wrong with it. And we just need to do that again, and yeah. it'll all be great. So we'll yeah. we'll we'll go in that direction. But but first, I want to start talking about family um, because sure. I grew up in a family with three boys, and <laughs> I just love that somebody <laughs> yeah. else has got that same dynamic going on. Um, yeah. But also for faith, for me, faith very much informs who I am as a husband and father, and I very much take joy in connecting those things with ministry. I wonder yeah. if, if we could just get to know you a little bit, hear your thoughts on connecting faith and ministry and, and family. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's the kind of our first ministry is in the home, right? I mean, in our own lives and then with our families. So we do, we have three boys. Um, my wife is totally outnumbered, but she's real tough. So she is a great boy mom. And, um, you know, I, I grew up in a house where, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of tricky to describe. I, I grew up going to church. Um, but it wasn't a Christian home in, in the way I would think of it in that, um, both of my parents would profess to be Christians, but our family dynamic, uh, became very destructive growing up and, uh, they, they eventually got divorced, but it was pretty toxic long before that. And, um, but along the way, by the grace of God, I met some just incredible people, and in particular, there was an um, an older gentleman in my church that when I was in ninth grade, just kind of took me under his wing, uh, asked me if I'd wanted to go to breakfast, if he could take me to breakfast before school, and um, it was really beautiful. It it started, you know, it wasn't all, anything particular that he said, but over literally hundreds of breakfasts over the years, he... Um, he showed me what it looked like to love your family well, uh, to, you know, integrate your home life and your faith in Christ, you know, that those things are not separate, that they all go together, and um, and, and your work life as well. Um, he was a successful uh, in his own right, in his career, and um, he was an engineer. Maybe that's why I got a mechanical engineering degree. I don't know, but um, anyways, so I have a both from difficult experience and from positive experience, I have a real passion for um, making Christ the center of our home. Tell me, um, I, I, you have older boys now, and one is a teenager, and that's yeah, what I'm just, dreading uh, with my They kids. all have January birthdays, so we've been in birthday month at my house. Today is actually my middle son's 12th birthday, mm. but my oldest just turned 15, and my youngest uh, a couple weeks ago turned 8, so no, so no break father, after Christmas for us, yeah. Yeah, you've been a father of three boys for uh, 15 years now, uh, a father yeah. of boys. Uh, I have one son, and I have three daughters. And I find that uh, my Christian virtue is regularly increased by my children pushing yeah. me on my limits. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, do you do you find do you, do you look at your children the same way as these are people God has given me not just to to steward and take care of, but they're essentially helping me grow in virtue as well? Yeah, certainly. And I mean, and marriage does that to the max as well, right? right. I mean, so. <laughs> Uh, you know, I think, you know, marriage and then, and then having kids, it, it very quickly, it's like a mirror that illuminates your own selfishness very quickly, you know, mm. and it's supposed when, to, yeah, yeah, when other, um, when other people, you know, the good and, and, you know, needs of other people now need, you know, need to take priority in your life or they ought to, mm. um, it does. I mean, it, it forms you. Like if you're, I think if you're doing it right, it forms you in in sort of the sacrificial, you know, servant posture that Jesus would have us live in. Yeah, the, that's something that. Um, I mean, I'm currently my eldest is seven years old. I I still have a lot to learn, but it's it's hard for me to suss out when it is that I 
for the good of my children and my wife need to take a servant posture and when I need to take a leader posture. Sure. Um, not that the two are always mutually exclusive, but sometimes uh, a servant can't lead in the way that a family uh, needs and, and vice versa. So, um, you know, that's just kind of the dance that every Christian Absolutely. father and husband has to do. And um, I, I'm, I'm hoping that—it's not that nobody talks about that in Methodist world, but I, I see a lot more of that from in the Reformed world about how yeah. to lead and how to steward a family, and um, that, that's something that I'm hoping to, to be a part of in the future, because uh, I know I need it badly, and then I, I suspect there are a lot of men who—nothing you know, nothing against women. I, I'm sure women need motherhood stuff, but we need healthy and strong fathers, godly fathers in the Methodist tradition as well, so I, I, I love that you're front and center with your family. Um, yeah. Talking about your career— You've done pastoral ministry. You've done work where the rubber hits the road. Yeah. You've done evangelical ministry. You've you've done evangelism. You've you've engaged right. non-believers to bring them into relationship with Christ. How many years total have you been in ministry? Uh, over nineteen now. A little over nineteen years. Who's older, me or you? How old are you? I'm forty. Okay, you're a year older than me, just barely. Okay. So we're close. We're right there Yeah, together. we're close. So is, is um, did you get into ministry while you were getting your MDiv? I got into ministry when I was still finishing my bachelor's degree, actually. Okay. I, I was at the very end of my engineering degree, and I got hired as a youth pastor, and um, it was another kind of—I've had a whole series of unexpected transitions in my life, which mm-hmm. that seems to be the way when you're walking with Jesus sometimes, but— mm-hmm. um, I started working full-time in the church, and I finished up my degree while I was doing that. And then I went, um, I took about a year off, I think. I'm trying to think the exact timeline. But then, and then I started um, from a distance going to Asbury. And so I never moved to Asbury because I was already working full-time in the church. And so I worked mm. uh, in ministry throughout that time. And then I kind of, I took the long track in uh, doing my MDiv because it was... Um, you know, I was kind of piecing it together, uh, you know, over a number of years, and then going down for intensives and all of that kind of thing. When did you and Heidi meet? We met, uh, honestly, right before I started uh, working in ministry. So um, we met in 2004, and we got married in 2005. That's so, the way to do it. Yeah, just, you know... Did she know she know, was marrying... You know, uh, uh, a man whose heart was going to be with the Lord personally and professionally all all your marriage life, or was has this been something that she's been pleasantly surprised to see develop over years? No, she knew it. Uh, she actually, so before I was ever offered that job, we started dating uh, right bef- before I was started working at the church, my first church, which was in Tip City, Tip City and a Methodist, and that was her home church, and I had a family connection to that church, and because of that, I had come to fill in preaching a number of times. And so her first exposure to me was actually preaching, I think. So uh, she kind of knew what she was getting into from the beginning, you know. Wow. Which has been good because <laughs> this had been an interesting ride for someone that wouldn't have known that was coming, you know. For sure. No, I've uh, when Sarah Beth and I first got married, we would uh, intentionally go find other clergy couples to have lunch or, or dinner or breakfast yeah. with when we would travel around, and we, we couldn't believe how many pastors' spouses were actually resentful 
because they mm. married their spouse before uh, right. they they entered ministry, and then they were not necessarily signed up for what came along. Um, so it's wonderful when you can start off. And, well, and even even when you have signed up for it, that doesn't mean that you're ready for what comes or you enjoy what right. comes. It's it's not That's a right. an easy way of life uh, for for most. But even so, it's wonderful when. You have a godly woman who's just drawn to a, a godly man and wants to build and serve the church, and uh, so that you look good in all this, and, and Heidi looks good, and, and uh, I'm just kind of curious. You've got three boys. Okay, I grew up in the church. To me, church was a phony place. Faith wasn't real mm-hmm. until I, I had to walk a really long, hard, sad path and then come back to the faith to discover it was real. I'm raising my children, hopefully, to know how real it is and engage on yeah. a deeper level and and not let church be a phony or hypocritical place for them. Do you feel like your boys are receiving the church for what it is? Are, are they doing well so far? Do you feel good about the way that they're walking with Christ through the church, or do you think that this is just a struggle no matter what? There's no way to just magically do it right and, and yeah. kids... What do you what do you think about all that? Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't think there's any perfect way to to do it. I mean, parenting and even just Christian parenting, a lot of it is kind of a trial and error. You just you you trust the Lord and you make decisions, and then you kind of adjust when when you realize you messed something up, and you know. So it never is just it never goes exactly according to the script that's in your mind that where how you'd like it to go but in general i think so far our kids have received the church well um that's great. that's a huge i mean testament to my wife's influence in their life i mean especially in the years you know i'm i'm more accessible now when it comes to um now that i work full time for spirit and truth you know i don't we go to church together, which is kind mm-hmm. of, which has been a really cool thing. Cause I, that's not something in for most of our lives that we were able to do because I was always preaching and, and doing that. So my wife was the one kind of navigating Sunday mornings and, and a lot of that. But, um, I don't, yeah, I don't know if there's any set formula, but they, um, they all have grown in faith and, and it's different. Each one is different. You know, our oldest is, um, you know he is he's a very independent person uh he loves the lord he but he's not someone who's going to talk about it much you know he's oh. he's very reserved and um but there's little moments where you see like a little breakthrough moments where you're like oh he really you know he does love mm-hmm. jesus that's that's good cuz he doesn't say much you know and then our middle one uh he's the one that i think um it I I have some sense that that he may be called into to vocational ministry also, mm. and he's he, anything that the church is doing, he's all in, and uh, he's actually he he's gotten a chance a couple of times to travel with me on spirit and truth trips, and he just he loves it, like he just jumps in, he'll stand there and pray for folks with me at at the services, and uh, you know it's so I don't know what God may do with that, but that's been really fun to see that. And our eight-year-old, I I don't know. He's he's still, he's eight. He's crazy. So we'll see. <laughs> I mean, he's he's a he's a smart kid, and he's starting to pick it up. But it's a life's a party for him still. <laughs> yeah, it's I I well, and of course there is no all boys are this way and all girls are this way. But my girls, my eldest daughter has been spiritually attuned from mm-hmm. the get go. 
and then my my son has not you know he's mm-hmm. he's he goes out he wants rocks and sticks and fishing yeah. and, and and all that stuff so it's a, a persistent thing in his life that surely his brain is working on you know the first song he ever sang was holy 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 That's but cool. um still you know it's my daughter saying we need to study the bible more and she gets yeah. home we've gotten home from worshiping in Delaware and then no what I serve two churches and then she wants to worship more and she goes into a bedroom and and worships That's by cool. herself so it's just pretty incredible um how differently children receive Christ and then just the role of a parent you know uh, whether my children receive Christ or reject Christ I don't I don't know that I feel like I have any control over that I just feel like my role as a father is to make sure that they know who Christ is yeah. That Amen. that they don't get that Jesus is nice and he loved the little children and he tickled them and yeah. he he doesn't re- you know the moralistic therapeutic deist um, yeah. God that's so often peddled at at these churches rather than the God of the Bible and so um, you know I I I I don't want to unnecessarily burden children with adult faith before they're ready for it but I also don't want them to ever think this is a social club that yeah. is just like everything else in life so. Anyway, you can uh, you know how to pray for me if you want to after all this, but I, I appreciate your thoughts on all that. Yeah. I, I feel like we could also have a really awesome conversation about evangelism. I think you would have a lot of wisdom for me and people listening to me. It's, it's clearly something that the Global Methodist Church cares about, and uh, a lot of people sh- would benefit listening to. But the reason I, I reached out to you and that I thought, would be good for my audience to listen to you was because of an article you published in Firebrand Magazine, and I'll link to it in this for anybody who wants to read it, but it was called Doctrine, Spirit, and Discipline, A Holistic Vision for Church Renewal. And um, to be honest with you, I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was a fantastic article. I I listened to it on the—you read it on your podcast out loud. I was walking my daughter around the block because she was sick and miserable, and I just thought, this is exactly—this is exactly my thoughts on— Amen. Methodist revival and what needs to happen. I was surprised at that because um, my only encounter with Spirit and Truth thus far has been through a series of conferences or um, evangelical events that that have been hosted. You know, some have been in my area, but I, I've heard about them for a number of years. Um, the the photos always look very engaging. It just looks like charismatic excitement. That's what I've sure. gotten from it. And I have a caricature in my head about the kind of people who go to that kind of stuff. They're very uh, concerned with emotions and feeling and loud music and public displays of fervent prayer. And so I, I, I was surprised in a pleasant way that you are one of these that has a balance of not just mm-hmm. the spirit, but of doctrine and discipline. Um, yeah. And of course, that was the crucible of early Methodism that that worked so well. Yeah. I wanted to, I had a, f- a few quotes in this article. Well, before I, I lift them up, you felt good about the way that I, I said all that, um, other than the caricature that's not, not very nice towards some charismatics. Yeah, no, well, uh, some of that caricature is justified because of some of the, um, I mean, there are, are people and places for sure that are just pursuing pure enthusiasm, you know, mm-hmm. and so... Um, who pursue an experience more than they pursue the Lord. And so um, I think some of that is justified. The thing I, you know, I don't, I I hate for people to see the abuses, but then miss out on the real thing also, you know, right. like, 
because um, even in our early Methodist days, um, there's a reason that they got accused of enthusiasm because right. the Spirit was moving in power among them, you know, and so that's why, but I I think that's why a Spirit-filled renewal has to happen within the sort of uh, the safeguards of sound doctrine and, um, you know, discipline in the way that we order our lives in the church. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. when you're within those boundaries, then um, it actually... I think increases freedom rather than sort of suppresses it. Yeah, that's that's an important concept. The nature of freedom, whether it's um, antinomianism, slaves to one's feelings, or actually cutting off parts of you yourself so that others may flourish uh, the more. Yeah. And that's a really important concept for faith. Um, I wonder if we'll come back to that. I, I don't know, but I there were a number of good quotes in this article that I wanted to lift up and just have you expand upon. The first one, and forgive me, I'm going to direct to my screen. It says, this was in the second or third paragraph, no one is under the delusion that thousands of churches changing the name on their sign will instantly cause a reversal in the well-documented church decline we have witnessed in North American Christianity. So the reason that my ears pricked up on that one is, and this doesn't directly address it, but I, uh, this has come into a number of conversations I've had with people. There is kind of this notion of we've gotten free of the United Methodist Church. We've gotten away from the cross mm-hmm. and flame. We've now got this new evangelical expression of Methodism. God is with us. The Holy Spirit is going to bless what we do, and we will see growth once again. And in that excitement—and I hate to be a wet blanket, but yeah. I don't hear— any kind of serious reckoning with demographic realities on the ground, on the massive amount of damage that's been done by prosperity gospel and moralistic therapeutic deism and materialism more broadly. I mean, we're just living in a ravaged post-Christian era where, um, hypothetically, yes, the Holy Spirit can can do all things. I I don't think it's a question about what the Holy Spirit can do. I want to see more sober realization of the Holy Spirit might not be choosing to bless us numerically right now. For for us, yeah. it, it could be the case that um, walking with the Spirit means being a part of a, a movement that isn't numerically impressive right now. Right. Um, that's that's kind of what I've seen my role, one of my roles in the, the Methodist movement being is our role is to go deep and be holy, whether or not that results in numerical growth. Yeah. How much of that do you agree with me on, and then how much of that do you think— um, you know, I agree with the larger point you make in this article, which is when you have the doctrine, spirit, and discipline all in here, you will eventually see health and growth. I, I think I I believe that. It's yeah. more for me a question of what the short-term, you know, next 10 or 20 years look like. What What are your thoughts on all that? Yeah. Well, I think it's important, you know, that we have— a larger understanding of what God is doing and, and, and kind of the state of that the church is in outside of just our Methodist bubble, because, um, you know, we tend, we kind of, in our denominations and, and within our streams, you know, we kind of tend to be a little insulated and we think what we're seeing is just the only thing. And, right. And, yeah. you know, if sort of a spirit-filled evangelical uh, church was going to instantly grow, uh, then there are there are already others that are 
in that stream outside of the Methodist world. We're, we're not exclusive in that. And, I, and this is on a whole other topic, but I do think it's important for us to figure out the unique reasons why God has raised up the Methodist Church and be true to those and not uh, try to, you know, just fashion ourselves as generic evangelicals. That's a whole other topic. But uh, I guess what I want to say is um, the state of the church in the U.S. is post-Christian, as what, you know, that you said a minute ago. And we've got to be realistic about that, and I think that has to... um, sort of inform how we think about the church. And um, if we want to, you know, if we want to reach new people, it's not going to be, it's not going to be because we just, you know, have catchier programs or we're not doing things that we didn't like our past denomination was doing. Like those things in and of themselves are not going to just instantly reach a bunch of new people in the context where we find ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think part of, that's part of what I wanted to get, a, you know, try to say in that article is that if we want to experience, I think, God's best for the future, then we have to do more than just sort of celebrate what we, what we aren't anymore, you know? And yeah. um, there's some rich heritage that we carry as Methodists that, that I think will lead to new life and eventually lead to to reaching new people but it's going to take a lot more reclamation a lot more work to bring that back into sort of you know get our dna saturated with that stuff again uh-huh. than just simply you know exiting the denomination and forming a new one those are i i am obviously think those are very important things they're just not the only things that we need to do yes yes um and uh, I'll give you a chance to come back to a lot of that stuff because we're we're going to walk down the line of this this uh, article and and you do talk about um, some of the things that you've you've already mentioned. Um, for those who haven't heard it before, the 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 real touchstone of Matt's article was this classic quote from John Wesley: "I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America, but I am afraid." lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. And of course, it always bothers me that he says both, but then he lists three things. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, just do whatever you want with the English language, John Wesley. But the, the larger point here is doctrine, spirit, and discipline, all three of these things were authentic indicators of what real Methodism is, and then I and many others got clear that the United Methodist Church sold that heritage for other things down the line, and that right now, the word you used a moment ago was, we're in a reclamation, uh, reclaiming the heritage that that we had before. You quoted a great quote from Chesterton, which is, um, it's not that, oh, do I have it marked? I don't. Uh, It's not that what we did before was tried and found wanting. It's that it was found difficult and, and we stopped trying. And yeah. so uh, what I appreciated your article was emphatically saying there is absolutely nothing wrong with original Methodism. In fact, we would be wise to reclaim it. Yeah, and I think, you know, original Methodism is gets at the just at the core of what Christianity is about. I mean, 
these things, this uh, doctrine, spirit, and discipline are um, not in and of themselves unique to Methodism. Now, there may be some uniqueness in the ways in which we live those out, but I think the real beauty of Methodism is the way in which all three of those things were held together. Uh, that's what I think, to me, when I look at the Wesleyan revival historically, the real beauty of it is the way that uh, they insisted upon those all coming. It, it's a, it was a holistic revival in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why um, I've at least heard some historians say they've, they've sort of named the Wesleyan revival the most sustained revival in history because mm-hmm. of the, the length um, that it sort of like played as the... And multi- as it played out and multiplied. And so you can see, you know, in both historical and in contemporary context, you can see instances where church renewal projects, whether it's uh, individual churches or particular leaders or, you know, parachurch ministries or movements, you can see examples, and I think I noted this in the article, of different places where people have sort of tried to major on either just one or two of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's always sort of pitfalls, because if you if you major on the Spirit, you were kind of talking about this earlier when you were talking about some of the excess, you know? If you major on the Spirit without doctrine and discipline, you get into wacky land real quick, you know? <laughs> That's just, that happens. Yeah. But I, you can also major on uh, doctrine and make that sort of, the end all be all of everything. And you can end up like having a sound teaching and still be dead, you know? And I know some uh, expressions in the church that I would, you know, lovingly sort of suggest maybe are in, in that vein. And you can sort of obsess over discipline, all of the nuts and bolts of, you know, how are we actually living this thing out? And again, you can, you know, you can find yourself dead if you don't have the other two. And so I think the beauty of early Methodism uh, was not any one of those in particular, but the way in which they were combined within the the sort of renewal movement that Wesley initiated. Yeah, you talked about um, how when he's talking about the spirit, the broad way in which he meant that is probably ethos, you know, which would be this unique combination, not necessarily unique, I, I would say it's just biblically faithful combination yeah. of these different um, ways of life tied together, but then also noting that uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit would, of course, characterize that Spirit broadly. And so another quote I, I liked from this article, you said, why was the Spirit of Methodists so crucial to Wesley? It's because Methodists have never been about just mere methods. You know, of course, they were mocked as being methodical. Uh, yeah. Methodist was originally a pejorative, but uh, that you know they reclaimed it, and of course they liked method. We're not against method, but it's not just about methods. Uh, we believe God is still actively at work in the world. Methodism is the grandfather to modern global Pentecostalism, the fastest growing religious movement in the world. Our methods, here is the key thing for me, have always been means by which we place ourselves in the environments where we can be filled and sent with the power of the Holy Spirit. And what I took from that is, you can't make the Holy Spirit come. We don't believe in magic. We don't believe in incantations, and when you say the right spells and arrange the right pieces, then the Holy Spirit always comes. We don't believe in that. But we do believe in um, 
forming ourselves and designing our lives in such a way that we are in conformity with scriptural instruction, believing that the Holy Spirit comes to those who pray for Him and seek Amen. Him. And so that that made a lot of sense to me where you're not, you know, this caricature of charismatics is. They're chasing a feeling, they're treating God like this genie that they can summon and command. I heard this, this uh, sermon one time by this guy Duplantis who talked about how the Holy Spirit is like... Um, he, he talked about being a grandfather, and if his granddaughter tells him to do anything, he'll just do it for her because he's a, he's a sucker for his little granddaughter. And that's not the right understanding of our no. relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, he is Lord, and, and we are not, but we that's can right. live submissive lives that, that welcome— what was the language you have here? We can place ourselves in the environments where we can be filled and sent with the, the power of the Holy Spirit. So I, I wondered if you had it in you to talk about— how spirit and truth, how your ministry broadly, and how spirit and truth. I, I see you trying to do that. That directly corresponding with this understanding of we're going to put people in these environments that are are predisposed in this direction. Yeah. So our ministry, you know, is kind of um, it's a combination of multiple things, and it's partly because it comes out of this vision that we're that we're just talking about right now. Um, so some people uh, think we just like do conferences and um, mm -hmm. but that's we do do some conferences, but that's not all all that we do. And so everything we do is kind of tried to to sort of bring these together where it's a combination of worship and prayer, um, you know, leading people to a place where they can we can create an environment where hopefully they're able to encounter the presence of God in a you know in a powerful way. But then it's, you know, it's also infused with teaching um, and then also hands-on equipping. And so, for example, like our kind of bread and butter ministry that we do is um, we, we go into local churches who are hungry for this kind of DNA and just they, they're looking for help to sort of um, spur people on in this sort of recovery project that we're talking about. And so we go in and we will host um, a weekend with them, which is called a Spirit and Truth weekend, or sometimes an Awakening weekend, and um, and it'll be it's like it's kind of a mashup of different things, but we see God, you know, do some really beautiful things through it. Uh, you know, in the evenings we have what might be described something like kind of revivalish services, you know, like preaching and uh, prayer, altar ministry, and all of these kind of things worship, obviously. Um, but then during the day, it's a lot of sort of practical equipping. And so, for example, one of the things that we do in these weekends a lot is um, we do some just kind of practical evangelism training, and then we take people uh, on prayer outreaches out into the community where we um, split them up into little groups, and we take them out and uh, just give them some instruction ahead of time and then they just we just go out and offer to pray for people and then when God opens the door uh we get people who have a chance to share their testimony or share the gospel and um and it's a it's a great training experience for people who have never done anything like this most of the time nobody's ever done anything like it mm -hmm. in Methodist churches um but it's a chance for them to break through some fear barriers in their own life that you know I can actually start to talk about Jesus outside of my church bubble and nothing bad happens you know like in fact, there's some really cool things that happen, and, and God, you know, can direct us in that way and move in that way. And so it's, um, 
we're not content to just sort of have gatherings where people can just feel warm and fuzzy and encounter the Lord. Uh, we want them to encounter the presence of God, but then we teach them about the ways in which that, um, you know, as we learn to live in His presence, that then He sends us into mission, and and that all of that is done with a, you know, hopefully a sound biblical foundation. So, I don't know if I really answered your question, but no, that's uh, a that's a helpful corrective because I I hadn't understood that those elements were a part of every spirit and truth gathering, and I think that is important for you to make sure that I and and my audience know. The I'm, I'm I said we weren't going to talk about evangelism, but this is clearly at the heart of what you're doing. Um, and so I, I find myself wondering, is there any particular, like one or two particular thinkers that have really informed your understanding of evangelism and how it works? Yeah, I've kind of, um, that's a good question. I've, I've read pretty broadly in that area just because it's a passion of mine. And, uh, that, that was the focus of my doctoral ministry, um, doctor of ministry degree as well. And, Probably the most basic text that I has been very formational for me is the Master Plan of Evangelism um, from Robert Coleman, which is um, in some ways it's a it's a little bit more of a disciple making text, which I kind of it, it it ties in with my sort of view of evangelism that it you know evangelism is just the first aspect of disciple making. I mean it, they all that all goes together. I don't think they're they're really bifurcated like we often try to do. So. Um, but that little book, which was written in the sixties, you know, has sold millions of copies. And I think there's some beautiful simplicity there. Mm -hmm. Um, some reminders about the way in which just the faith is passed life to life. And it's not sort of a, um, there's no silver bullet program or event or anything that's going to, um, sort of make evangelism happen. It's not, evangelism is not, not the work of a committee in your church. It's the work of God's people. That's the way he's always, you know, the faith has been passed among his people. That's what he does, you know? And so, um, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. I, I took, um, I went to seminary at Boston University School of Theology, and we, of course, had a postmodern evangelism class where we, you know, kind of step outside of uh, traditional understandings of evangelism as somehow trite, and, you know, we... Yeah. I, I could I could kind of caricature that a little bit more, but that wouldn't be helpful. Um, I, I think, you know, evangelism is clearly... If we're not telling good news, what are we doing, you know? Right. But there's a question of how to do it in a pro- post-Christian context, and... Um, and especially for those coming out of a lukewarm tradition who might not have ever heard the pure word proclaimed, yeah, uh, then it really gets kind of complicated. But you and your organization are willing to wade into those waters with, with churches and people that have a hunger and passion for this. And so, um, I, yeah, I do hope some, that. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, and some some of the people that I mean, a lot of people that we interact with in these mostly Methodist churches, we've worked with. Um, you know, a few other kinds of, like, a few independent churches, or um, we were uh, in a free Methodist church not too long ago. I mean, some some people in, in different sort of Wesleyan streams, but um, there's a lot of people in these churches that can't, they can't articulate just the basic gospel themselves. Cannot. You know, they cannot, yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that we encounter a, a lot, you know, as we're, as we're doing this, is that just that reality that if, 
even if even if uh just given sort of uh the heaven split perfect opportunity you know my coworker walked up to me and said can you just tell me who Jesus is and why it matters you know what mm-hmm. i mean and i think a lot of people in our churches would struggle uh right? yeah. to 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 answer that and so yes. That's one of the things we challenge people on when we go there um, and, and we talk about evangelism. Like, every Christian has to be able to do that. I had some other portions in your article that I wanted to read, but as I've listened to you over the last few months, your your demeanor is so gentle and calm, and um, and I find myself agreeing with the content of all of what you say what I, I'm obviously cut from a slightly different cloth. I'm much more, I don't know, um, I'm a harder person. I don't know. Um, and and I, I believe that the church, of course, obviously has room for all kinds of people. But what I when I hear you talk, when I hear you deliver these words, I find myself wondering what you make of the OG John Wesley and some of these harsher sermons that he had and and the early Methodist tradition and feeling so comfortable condemning society broadly and individuals particularly for sin, uh, the hellfire and brimstone that that for so long we were associated with. As you're talking about evangelism and disciple-making, you know, for me, that's part of what my understanding is we need to reclaim these things. You know, in the mm. Articles of Religion, we have original sin, we have the depravity sure. of man, we have we are unable to sa- save ourselves at all, we are not inclined towards good but bad continually, we need a supernatural act from God and His preventing grace to, to make us even able to understand our sin and be convicted of it. You know, all of that is so harsh, and it needs to be yeah. delivered harshly, and so, you know, as we're talking about evangelism, there's so many people within Methodism and, and also outside of it that think you can understand the good news without understanding the bad, mm. and that, that people can be drawn to Christ without hating their sin and being repulsed by their, their inner nature. Uh, you're, you're clearly practiced. I mean, uh, who am I? I'm just some guy. I mean, it doesn't matter what I think, but I, I wonder what it is you make of me as I share these thoughts with you, does it seem to you that a post-Christian culture really, it's not needed and is actually potentially harmful to have this kind of old-school approach, or do you think it's a worthy thought that maybe we do need to reclaim some of that, um, I'll just say, hellfire and brimstone again? What do you think about all that? Yeah, well, I certainly agree with, I mean, the the doctrinal content that you're describing um you know, I think it's just Christian, uh, original sin, sort of the depravity of man, all of these things. I mean, this, to me, that's just like central to sort of Orthodox Christianity. Um, so, so I do think we need to teach those things and preach those things. Um, you know, I, I do sometimes, you know, I think there's some question about, um, how best sort of to it de- i think it depends on your audience i guess uh and and what's the best way uh to deliver the truth of the gospel to the audience that you're trying to reach mm-hmm. and um not altering the message but i do think there is some some room for the methods in which we go about delivering uh the truth of the gospel and so um 
you know, I, our culture is, is coming to a place where there's, there's just so little uh, biblical literacy. There's so little sort of even latent knowledge of Christian teaching that you're so often, I think, when it comes to unchurched folks, you're, you're, and sometimes church folks, unfortunately, you're starting from square one, you know, like yes. you're starting with, with nothing. And, you know, I, I'm not sure there's just a one size fits all approach. I do think, I think there's times, um, and I think this is where I would emphasize the role the de- of dependence and discernment with the Holy Spirit. There are times where you need to cut through uh, in a moment and say, a hard word to sort of penetrate someone's heart. And there are other times where you need to like uh, lead in a, you know, more gentle way um, in order to uh, continue the conversation and, and, and trust that the Lord is going to bring the conviction um, and lead them to a place of repentance uh, as you move along. So, I'm not opposed at all uh, to reclaiming some of the teaching that what you're describing. I think the way in which the teaching is is sort of lived out in the context of evangelism is something that takes real discernment. I hear you. Um, let, let's see if we can't get a... Well, something else I wondered as I read about this, uh, read your article, was um, part and parcel with early Methodism for at least the first 80 years was it was an exclusive society where if people were not part of the program, they, they were kicked out. And that was not just yeah. in the, the days in Great Britain, but early American days, whenever it was yeah. a denomination. They, they practiced church discipline. Um, I am one of the only voices I've heard saying that this is something of early Methodism that needs to be reclaimed today. We need quality control, not just among our clergy, but among our laity. Um, yeah. do, do you have any thoughts about reclaiming a, a movement with an authentic Methodist identity without uh, a means of removing disorderly walkers from our midst. Yeah, I mean, the exact mechanics of how that gets lived out, we would have to flesh out further to know, you know, to what degree I agree with you. Um, but I do think, in general, I will say that raising the bar and creating a a clarity of accountability within Methodism, not just with clergy or bishops, but with all method, all people who would call themselves Methodists, mm-hmm. is, I think, um, extremely important. You know, I believe that we are entering, we are already in and are going to increasingly be in a time where um, nominal Christians that's 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 died out. I mean, there's the you can't sort of we're we're in a time and increasingly it's going to get worse. I think where only real disciples are going to make it anyways, and so I think you're doing people a disservice if you don't call them to a high bar. Um, I wrote an article a few years ago that really caught me off guard of how widely it got shared, um, called the death rattle of consumer Christianity, and. It was during COVID, and my sense of the way in which uh, that was sort of just speeding up the sort of like uh, killing off of mediocre Christianity that was already there, you know, like people who were barely churched uh, just went ahead and became non-churched, you know what I mean? Like it Mm -hmm. just kind of sped up what was already happening. And um, 
I do think this is a time in in our lives in the in in the culture where we have to get very serious about taking people deep, mm-hmm. and um, otherwise they're not going to make it. I mean, it's that sort of just show up at church once in a while, make yourself feel good kind of Christianity, which was never really Christianity at all, but the facade of it as sort of keeping the facade of making churches sort of look successful, that's all kind of dying out, I think. Um, Mm. And there's still some remnants, but it's... It won't last. And so... um, I actually think, you know, when I... Especially when I speak with young people, you know, we have a a young woman who works on our staff who's 20 years old. And um, when I speak with people people like her and people in her generation... They want something, they want to do something hard. Uh-huh. They want something that's going to challenge them. Like they, I think people actually, whether they realize it or not, sometimes they wouldn't name it out loud. They want to be called into something costly. And um, I think we have an opportunity as Methodists to get serious about that, about calling people into something that actually matters, something that costs you something. And... Practically, I think that means, um, you know, if it means returning to the kind of mechanisms where, you know, class meeting membership was required and those kind of things, and yeah, I, I'm supportive of, of any of that. You're cool. I like you. Let's, <laughs> um, let's, um, I had one more section. It was the final section, and it just made me, th- that's after which I was just like, I have to talk to Matt. So I, it's it's lengthy. It's two or three paragraphs. I'm going to read through, and then I'm going to set up a way I'm I'm looking at things and question and and just see what your brain does with it. But this is um, a, after going through the three segments that Methodism has to reclaim: spirit, do, doctrine, discipline. You say, notice that none of these is flashy or new. The church is not revived through ingenuity or better strategy, but a recognition that God still works in the ways He always has if we are humble enough to make room for it. Notice also that these strategies for renewal do not depend on church size or budget. Every church can focus on doctrinal renewal, making room for the Holy Spirit, and teaching people to practice transformational disciplines. Amen to all of that. What we need in the church is not something new. We just need to do what has always worked. Here's the G.K. Chesterton quote. He said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The original Methodist movement was not dynamic because it somehow discovered a fresh new way to follow Jesus. John Wesley, on the contrary, was obsessed with, quote, the primitive church, end quote, and recovering that which had been lost in the Church of England at the time. Methodists are, since our inception, a back-to-the-basics people. So I read that, and I'm 100% on board with this. And then here's the predicament I'm in, Matt. I think the the rich tradition of Wesleyan Methodist hymnody, there was nothing wrong with whatsoever. Mm-hmm. A robust singing congregation that learns doctrine through the lyrics is absolutely... I mean, I'm not going to say it's essential to be a Methodist, but I'm going to say it's part of that early Methodist DNA. 
And in all the GMC gatherings I'm watching, all of the conferences I'm watching, it's it's a lot of rock band modern music stuff that you can't even hear your neighbor singing mm-hmm. next to you. And it seems to me that this is a really anemic way to express the kind of theology that you're bearing out here. And also, I mean, I would just say that sort of setup takes money. To do that well takes money. Sure. And I, I'm wondering if part of reclaiming Methodism needs to be reclaiming a cappella singing in our homes, learning to play mm. piano and, and just sing with each other's voices in our churches. I'm worried that so many congregations don't even know how to worship without a rock band at the front or without yeah. turning on the radio at home. And so I'm all about reclaiming primitive Methodism, but that seems to me to be at odds with modern worship and this kind of consumer Christianity that is so anemic. Um, so as as I put these things, as I pit these things against each other, does that seem unnecessary to you? Do you think there is some way to, to fit this together so they're not at odds? Um, what are your reflections on all that? Yeah, that's a great question. I, um, I have a few thoughts that come to my mind. Uh, one, I will say, uh, I per- personally, this is just my personal thing, I love both um, I love the the hymnody and I love modern worship both. That's just my personal experience in worship. I um, I find that I can worship the Lord through both of those uh, styles. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with a church, you know, using either one. Um, I do agree with you in that I I think the sort of the teaching that comes through our best hymns. Now, to be fair, some of the hymns in the UMC had junk teaching them in them anyways, you know what oh, I mean? Yeah. So oh, yeah. just because it's in a hymnal doesn't mean that it's got good doctrine, you know? What Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. Uh, so um but and just because it's a modern song doesn't mean it has bad teaching in it. You know, I mean, That's we true. can go both directions with that. So I what I do think here's one thing the the sort of piece that I wanted to to just comment on the most is that I think what you just described the impulse for churches to feel like they have to have a band with modern music is in fact a product of sort of the attractional church growth movement for the of the last 50 to 60 years mm-hmm. and while I don't think that it's necessarily bad to have a band with that with and utilize some of that music, I do think it's it's silly for a church to feel like they have to have that. And there's such beauty in the hymnody, and I agree with you in that. Um, especially uh, most smaller churches, they don't have to feel so forced to try to like you know they're always like, oh, we just we need a guitar player, you know, we need all this stuff. You, I just don't. You know, we were in a church last this past weekend. We were doing a, a conference down in Alabama, and they have uh, they're a church that has two styles of worship, and they do them both pretty well. And um, but in the midst of some of our conversation in the conference, one of the things that I said is like, uh, "Your the style of your worship is not." That's not going to be make or break you either way. I do think the content. I, I want to separate style from the content of what we're singing because I do think it shapes us. So I agree with you in that respect. Um, but 
the idea that somehow if we just had a better band, we would reach more people mm-hmm. is that's it's that's just a it's a false idea that came i believe out of the church growth uh, movement which emphasized the kinds of you know let's polish things up and present things uh that we think people will like in hopes that we can trick them into the building and maybe they'll hear about Jesus along the way yeah. um that it doesn't work anyways i mean in in our current post christian uh culture people aren't out just sort of church shopping uh, I often joke when I'm talking about evangelism and these things, I say it's like we're obsessed with... Uh, the church is like trying to become the best cassette deck manufacturer they can. Like, we're competing with other churches. Like, oh, we've got all these features. Well, it doesn't matter because nobody's nobody wants to buy a cassette deck anyways. They're not even mm. looking, you know? They're not in the market. It doesn't matter what features you put on it, you know? Right. And yeah. so... Um, so, yeah, just to back up, I would say I do agree with... The content of what we sing and how we worship, it, it matters and it shapes us. I also think there's worthy discussion to talk about other aspects of liturgy and uh, creeds and all kinds of things. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a bunch of things we could talk about uh, when it comes to the, our worship gatherings. Mm-hmm. But separate from that, I think the practical point that you made about not feeling like you have to have that is... Is a is an important one because that kind of gets behind behind that sort of impulse that you have to have a modern worship band. That's the same impulse that drives a lot of other bad decisions in churches as well. Right? You know? Yeah. 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 Well, I I only got you to agree to an hour, and we were able to cover so much ground, and I'm just so pleased right now. Um, so thank you for that, and uh, I I want to spend the last couple minutes as as long as you want to take. Matt, can you tell people um, you, you've started this ministry, Spirit and Truth. It's going well. You've got a lot of, of stuff going on. We're going to put a, a link to your website on here, but for anyone who's taken the time to listen to you and wants to know more about you and your ministry, what, what would you have them do? Yeah, um, probably the easiest thing is to go on our website, spiritandtruth.life. Um, there's a variety of things that you can look at on there. The, the main things that we do, um, we do um, equipping, we provide resources, and then we also have uh, some international partnership, and we do some work um, with pastors and church planting in Kenya as well. So um, if you haven't uh, checked out a few of our resources, we do have uh, the Spirit and Truth podcast, which is kind of a very kind of informal, conversational podcast about spirit-filled living and church life and those kinds of things. The Firebrand podcast, uh, which is... Um, tends to be a little bit more theological in nature, current talking about current events and those kinds of things, uh, obviously all informed by sort of Wesleyan Methodism. And then um, if you haven't looked at Firebrand Magazine, that's one of our uh, resources that Spirit and Truth produces, uh, firebrandmag.com. Uh, that also is all linked on our main website, spiritandtruth.life. And if you're uh, if someone wants to come and uh, be a part of one of our in-person trainings. Uh, most of them are, you know, at individual local churches. But as those are confirmed, we have um, we have things booked throughout the entire year. We kind of a year out, and so um, most of them are already up on our website, so they can look and see if there's something in your area. Um, we'd love to to have you join us sometime. Well, Matt, thank you so much again for making the time and for writing this article. I just think it's a fantastic article. So, um, thank you, folks. Whether you're 
listening to it or watching this segment that we've done, make sure to, to click the link uh, to this article and, and think through and pray on how it is that you can be a part of reclaiming the Methodist heritage. I've said it before, I'm going to say it a lot. I, I think that the Methodist revival was the closest thing to Pentecost since the day of Pentecost, mm. and I don't think there's any reason why we can't have it back. Matt and I are of the same mind on all this, and Matt is is uh, the proof in the pudding. He's he's going around and lighting these matches, and the Holy Spirit is going to uh, spread the flame for sure. So, Matt, thank you so much for the service uh, you're doing towards uh, not just the Global Methodist Church, but Pan-Wesleyanism, and I just really look forward to seeing God continue to bear fruit through you in spirit and truth. Thank you so much. I'm grateful grateful this, for this conversation. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, friends, if, if you've enjoyed this conversation and you want to hear more stuff like it, then make sure that you're subscribed to me wherever you're listening or watching, and then make sure the, to follow Matt uh, wherever he is as well. Uh, these are all important things. We wouldn't be talking about them if we didn't think they were, so we hope you agree and that, that you uh, align your life accordingly. So Matt and I are going to go pray now. We'll say goodbye to you, and I'll, I'll see you folks next time.